Hey church, Pastor Adam here, and I want to say thank you so much for stopping by to join us for Church Online today. And, and while we are super stoked that you're hanging out with us this morning, we do want to remind you that really this is just is supplemental. And man, it just cannot replace the local church in your life. And so look, we hope that you are encouraged and, and challenged and shaped by today's message that's being preached. Uh, but, but also, we don't want to be uh, your substitute. Uh, for the local church body that you should be involved in. We really do believe that the local church is God's plan A in reaching the world. So with that being said, please come hang out with us in person uh, one Sunday. If you're in Paducah in the area, come hang out with us to get some rest or find a local Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching church that you can get plugged in and connected to. Uh, Jesus loves the church and, and we love Jesus and, and we believe that we can better serve uh, Jesus, if we love his church well. So, welcome to rest. If you would, if you'll open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to continue on in chapter 2. Um, Pastor Adam killed it last week on like absolutely short notice. Um, two weeks, or uh, not. All last week, I was recovering um, from COVID. I caught COVID um, in a conference room in a meeting with uh, one of my customers. And Adam, under short notice, had to preach last week um, on a text that I had been preparing for. And uh, I had been looking forward to preaching. Uh, verse 2 is one of the core competency verses um, of my life. <clears throat> And my, my, the guys who have been discipled by me, they know that, um, as I call it, 2T2 is um, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. And A.B., just, he just knocked it out of the park last week. And, and I appreciate him for jumping in um, in light of my sickness. Um, but chapter 2 as a whole is one of my favorite um, chapters in all of the Bible and in, in the whole entire canon. Um, chapter two of Second Timothy is one of my favorite, and the reason why is is because it kind of has this one continued theme or this one continued thought running throughout the the chapter the whole time, and it is gospel centered discipleship. Because what, what we hear um, right off the bat is is Paul telling Timothy to be strengthened. And how does he tell him to be strengthened? By the grace of God. And, and, and so he's to draw from that wealth, that wellspring of life that overflows continuously. He is to draw from that well of grace. And in that, he kind of gives him the thesis of his life. Say thesis. He gives him the thesis of his life, and that is to invest in reliable men, who would also be able to teach others, to invest in people who would continue this gospel-centered discipleship process over and over and over. And so as, as we kind of go through our text this morning, verse three through seven, as we kind of take a very granular look, a very granular approach at these, these particular four verses, I want us to constantly think through verses one and two. And we're gonna come back to that, but let's read verses three through seven. Share in suffering as a good soldier 
of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Lord Jesus, we, we thank you. We thank you for, for this letter, this prison letter, written out of a, of, of a place of, of love, out of a place of, of, of shepherding, a heart of a shepherd to his, his young protege. God, we, we thank you for that because there's so much for us as modern day believers to find it practical for our lives. Lord, I pray that today that as we study your word, God, that you would move and that you would work and that you would intervene and, and that, Lord, that you would set us on fire for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we kind of have these three illustrations that Paul gives us in these, these four verses. And, and Paul loves two of the three illustrations. If, you, if, if you've studied much of Pauline writings, what you'll find is two of the three happen over and over and over. And it's because of the imagery that was very prevalent to them during the first century. You gotta think he's writing to folks who are living under Roman rule. And so he uses analogies that they would very easily be able to put together with real life and gospel application. What are those three things? Number one, he, he gives us the soldier. Say soldier. And number two, he gives us the athlete. And number three, he gives us the farmer. Three powerful illustrations. Two, uh, one and two he says over and over. He gives us um, in, in Corinthians, also in uh, Philemon. He, he gives us these particular illustrations for us to hold on to. And as we unpack these, um, these images, what we have to constantly come back to is verses one and two, right? Because one tells us where we're drawing from the well of grace, and two gives us the thesis of what's going on. Uh, what, what we need to understand is he wants us to get the context of the why behind the what and the how, and he never wants it to be too far in the distance throughout this entire chapter. Everything he asked Timothy is spawned from his desire for Timothy to continue that passionate, life-giving, gospel-centered discipleship by the strength of grace. So, so let's, let's kind of rewind and and look back at that verse, verse number um, one, we're going to read in two. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Okay, so let's keep that context. What's the context? Verses one and two, keep that in mind. Now, you're going to hear me say that over and over to the point you are sick of it. In verse two, Paul asked Timothy to establish a godly legacy, okay? He says, I want you to go continue on my work, my gospel-centered discipleship work. Establish a legacy. In verse three, what's he essentially asking him to do? Look at it. Share in what church? Woo! 
If you got a letter from somebody today that was like, I wanna invite you over to my house so that you can suffer. And there was like, hey, you know, RSVP. Chances are you're not RSVPing to that invitation, right? But, but, that, but that's, what, that's what we have right here. This is an invitation from Paul to Timothy and he's inviting him to share in the suffering. Yeah. In modern Christian teaching, these two things, godly legacy and suffering are juxtaposed to each other. In modern Christianity, pastors want to tell their congregants that if they come to Jesus, it'll all be okay. That if they come to Jesus, he'll never put more on you than you can handle. The truth is, is that's not found in the scriptures. That's not found anywhere in the scriptures. No, what we see in the New Testament is Jesus taught his disciples that they would suffer for his name. That they would suffer. That they would be put to death for his name. If you study much of the early church and the history, what you find is almost all of the early church patriarchs find an early death. Very different than what we hear from the American pulpit, from, from the American church today. You know, we're, we're, we're worried about whether we're, we're swagged up. We're worried about whether we, we have, you know, great, great coffee designer, you know, frappes in our cafe. We're taking selfies as we're doing mission work. We're not, we're not suffering. We're, we don't know what it means to suffer, and, and, and you know, as, as, I, as I think through this, it's critical that we see that Paul is passing that same expectation that Jesus gave to his disciples down to Timothy. He says, you need to expect suffering. You're going to share in the suffering. If you do gospel work, church, if you say, I want to give my heart, my life, everything about me to Jesus, I can tell you this within a guarantee. Expect suffering. Say it with me. Expect. Come on, say it like you mean it. Expect. That's really hard for us to say, isn't it? This week in kind of my few brief moments of freedom, in fact, I got my, my weekly report um, on my watch this morning of my screen time, and it was like, hey, your screen time was down like a bill, bajillion percent. And um, as, as, as I, at one of my very brief moments, I got to hear this, this really short clip from a guy named um, uh, Simon Sinek. Maybe you've heard of him. He's done a lot of TED Talks and stuff like that. And, and as I thought through what he said, I came immediately to verse three. I, 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 I won't tell you where I was at when I was watching this, but I immediately went to verse three. And, and, and the reason why, and you'll understand here, but he says in his, in his clip, he says, the human brain cannot comprehend the negative. It's incapable it's incapable to comprehend the negative. Yes, yes, it's true. Here's an example. Everybody get ready. Everybody give me your focus. All right, give me your focus. Don't think of an elephant. 
What did you do? What did you? John, what did you? You thought of an elephant. Is there anybody who, when I said, don't think of an elephant, didn't immediately go, just think of an elephant, right? that's, That's what we do. You can't tell the human brain not to do something. What we often do is reinforce things when we put them in the negative. For example, when we tell ourselves, I've got to stop doing this, or I no longer can do X, Y, or Z, what do we do? When we, when we say, I've got to stop thinking about this, it's only stressing me out, we think about it more, right? Like when somebody, when you say, when you say to somebody, hey, um, I can't stop thinking about this, and they say, well, stop thinking about it. Don't you just want to, like, get out your powder? And slap them. I mean, I mean, isn't that what you want to do? You're like, if I could have done that, I already would have. I already would have. But what we, what we tend to do is we tell ourselves not to do something. We continue to do it. It's such a huge thing to convert things into the affirmative instead of the negative. Skiers know this to be true. When they're racing down the mountain... And, and, and they're in kind of a grove of aspen trees or they're around a, a bunch of pine trees. As they're going down, and I mean, they are flying down this mountain. The whole time you're watching them, if you've ever watched it, you're like, how are they not hitting those trees? Right? Is there any, anybody else like that? I mean, I, I'm a fat kid in remission right now. If you don't know, you know, look, look online, look at a couple months back, you'll see. But um, I know that when I go skiing and stuff, it's a near-death experience every time, right? There was this one time, and I won't tell the whole story, but Adam convinced me I should snowboard. And I'm okay at skiing. And I'm too fat to snowboard. I'm not now. I think I could do it. But, you know, your gut, when you try to get down, it just doesn't work out. Just doesn't work out. Um, anyways, so he convinces me one day, hey, I, I should do a double black diamond with him. He's supposed to be my best friend since, like, I don't know, my whole life. Anyways, um, he's like, yeah, you can do it. And we get off the ski lift, and he's like, let's go. Adam just jets right down the mountain. Well, I get kind of hung over next to a cliff, a literal cliff, to the point that I have to take my board completely off and walk out into the middle of where everybody's flying by me because every time I tried to get up, I only got closer to the cliff. And when I say close to the cliff, I mean like here to the baptismal thing, like that close, and I was like, nope, dear Jesus, nope. Anyways, but the whole time that somebody's flying down the mountain, you're going, how do they do this? Well, well one, thing that, one thing that we think is that they're going, oh, um, don't hit a tree, don't hit a tree, don't hit a tree. But did you know that that's not, in fact, what they say? That's not, in fact, what they say. Because if they were saying, don't hit a tree, don't hit a tree, you know what the only thing they would see as they went down the mountain? Trees. And they would hit a tree but no what in fact what a true skier does who does cross-country skiing going through the snow is they look at the path they only look at the path they say where's the snow where's the snow looking at the path and by looking at the path they don't ever hit the trees 
It is our choice how we choose to perceive our circumstance. See, in our suffering, what we tend to do is we think of the trees all the time. We think of, no, I can't do that. I, 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 I will hit this. I can't be around that person because of this. Rather than looking at the path that Jesus has put us on. And what, what, what I look at, what I see here, when I think about this particular scripture is I think about where Paul's at in life as he writes these words. Paul is in a Roman prison, not for the first time, but for the second. And what Paul knows is that he is facing 100% certain death because now now the new ruler of Rome is Nero, and Nero is in an all-out mission to put to death every Christian that he possibly can. And so when Paul writes to Timothy and he says, come share in the suffering with me, Paul's writing from a place that in, in our eyes would be dark and would be desperate. How could he say, don't focus on the trees, Timothy, focus only on the path because he knows his suffering has a purpose. Paul does not see his suffering as an obstacle or something where he needs a breakthrough from, but part of God's eternal path. Notice how he puts it in the church to Corinth. In verse, in chapter, uh, chapter four of 2 Corinthians, he says, so do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He writes to the church in Rome, he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul sees his suffering as part of the process. That's why he's inviting Timothy to share in the suffering because it's part of the process. While, while difficult, while uncomfortable, he says it is insignificant when compared to the weight of eternal glory. Your suffering today, your sorrows today, they have a purpose. God wants to use them as part of his plan in your life. Through your suffering, you can reach those who you never would have reached before. Paul said, in his, in his time in prison, I thank God that I'm here because I'm here. The gospel is spreading throughout the jailhouse. Because I'm here, God has opened a door of opportunity for me to speak into the lives of people who I never would have had face time with before. I think we, we need to see that not all suffering is bad. While it is uncomfortable, while it is not fun, it opens the door for the gospel. For the gospel. <laughs> Excuse me. I have many, many different thoughts on the deconstruction movement that's going on right now in the evangelical church. And I, I'm not gonna cover them all. In fact, I'm just gonna cover one, one in particular here that deals with this. I'm convinced that the deconstruction movement is in full effect because of the pervading lack of discipleship in the church. 
Without discipleship, we fail to see that suffering, difficulty, relational turmoil is part of the walk with Christ. Rather popular Christianity um, teaches the opposite, and it reinforces that, hey man, all's gonna be good. God will never put more on you than you handle. If you just come to God with prayer and faith, if you just give, you can't outgive God. All these monikers. It leads people to a place where they don't understand appropriately that God called his apostles to suffer. That God sometimes stripped their family and their friends from them. In fact, we see that here in 2 Timothy. We see that Paul has been completely and utterly deserted from almost everyone in the church. He's became a pariah to the church because of his constant legal issues. So I, I think it, it's critical that we put into biblical perspective that suffering is part of the walk with Christ. The truth is, is Jesus called us to come and die die to our selfishness, die to our own desires. And right there, church, right there is where it's at. Christ has not called us to a life of ease, but a life of endurance. I heard this quote this week, actually in the movie theater, and I wrote it down right before um, mine and Molly's date on Friday night. You're only as strong as your readiness to surrender. You're only as strong as your readiness to surrender. So right now, you might feel weak in your suffering. You might say, I, I, why God, why me, why am I here? And I think it is only in the place where we come to utter dependence upon God. It is there, like Paul said, when I am the weakest, I am the strongest. It is because we pull from the well of grace and we are strengthened in those moments. It's only there when we completely surrender to his beautiful providential will that we will be strengthened. Verse four, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Paul is asking Timothy to understand the assignment of a soldier. It's not rallying the troops for a political cause. It's not picking fights on social media over who knows what. It's not driving the family all over the countryside 26 out of 52 weeks so that, so that Billy or Mandy can play travel ball. Soldiers live with an awareness that there is a war going on. There is a sense of, of, of concentration, self-denial, disregard for trivial matters. The assignment for Timothy is the exact same as it is for us today. To give our time, our talents, our money in effort to disciple people for Jesus. As, as A.B. said last week, when we get to heaven how our church is, is, is reviewed, the, the, the scorecard or the report card on our churches, it is not measured in butts in the seat. It's not measured in bucks in the offering boxes. 
It's not measured numerically on how many people check the box and say, yes, I accepted Jesus as Lord. No, no, what our measuring stick is, is how many people have been discipled by, been discipled who continue on to make disciples. What's the last command of Jesus in both, uh, both Matthew 28, Acts 2, it is to go into the world and to make disciples. Not converts, but disciples. And so that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, understand the assignment. Understand who it is that has enlisted you and be a faithful and good soldier. Later on, in fact, in this chapter, he, he says this in, in, in 2.24, you know, not to fight about words. Or in 2.26, avoid irreverent and empty speech. And in 2.22, to flee from your youthful passions. And we'll, we'll exposit that later, but if we distill all of that down, He's saying, don't waste your life on nothing. Don't waste your life on nothing. And and the problem is, is we're so consumed with being right. We're so consumed with making sure that other people's words are politically correct or they're adjusted appropriately to the scriptures that we're fighting constantly. We're battling with folks, whether it be, you know, think about all the time that I've seen people fight and yell and bicker in the church and and hate each other. And then also online, Twitter's the worst. It's like everybody's out fighting each other. we're, we're, We're on WPSD's feed and we're fighting over nonsensical stuff. We're fighting over stuff that won't matter in five years, let alone 50. And and, and that's exactly the very things in chapter two that he's saying, as a good soldier, stop this madness. Stop it. Because the world is watching. We are the hands and feet of Jesus and what we say, it matters. It carries an eternal weight. Do you hear me? It carries an eternal weight. He's saying don't get caught in the civilian matters. Don't get caught in these things that that won't, they will not matter. They will pass away, but you know what will remain? The blood of Jesus and the hell for those who do not Surrender their life to it. It will remain. It will not pass away. Don't waste your life and your time on nothing. Our aim is to please the one who enlisted us. Verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. This speaks volumes to me. Maybe you don't know this, but um, for uh, 11 years, I was a high school um, wrestling official. And um, I, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't officiated in a couple of seasons, but uh, I have officiated um, 10 state championship titles here in Kentucky. And I've had the great great enjoyment of doing it. Wrestling is part of my life. Um, a lot of my character was drawn from that. And I, I will tell you, as an official, it was my job to know the rules of the game inside and out and to enforce them without prejudice. 
No matter who it was, no matter where they were from. In fact, um, there's probably lots of videos out there. My dad, uh, at one point, my dad was the, uh, the head coach at Caldwell County. My uncle was the head coach at Callaway. And another uncle was the head coach at Union County. So uh, when they would have a tri-meet and all three of them would be together and I was officiating, you can only imagine. Um, there's been many a nights that I have almost thrown my father out of the gym. Um, it would be funny because my mom and dad would get into it after me and him would get into it. Got to love a wrestling family. But I have been booed. I've been cussed. I've been threatened with bodily harm. I've been escorted to my car by a police officer. And for what? For what, you might ask. You might ask me, what's the reason? For enforcing the rules. For enforcing the rules. As an athlete, there's no shortcuts. There are countless hours of discipline and work that is put into being good, let alone elite. And as I think through this particular thing, I believe what Paul is pointing out is that no athlete can win without following the rules. There's no shortcuts. It requires absolute discipline. Now, Paul, don't get me wrong, he's not talking about rule keeping to earn our salvation. That's not at all, he's not teaching a works-based salvation. That's not what we see here. He's talking about the desire of every true believer is to walk in godliness according to God's word so that we might please him, so that we might know him in relationship with our lives and that our lives would be governed by his word. If you want to make sense of your, uh, of, your, of your suffering, if you want to make sense of your circumstances, I implore you to engage the word of God. I assure you that if you faithfully spend time in the word, he will not leave you in the lurch. In fact, what, what we see from David David says, I search the scriptures, I study them that I might not sin against you. See, David, David understood that if, if he searched the rule book, if he searched the manual guide, if he searched it out, what he would know is that he could have deeper, more intimate relationship with God, that he could walk in absolute communion with God. And, and what we see is in the later season, in the palace season of David's life, he takes his eyes off of the book and he puts it on the woman and it all falls apart. He takes his eyes off the book and it all falls apart. If you wanna make sense of your suffering, you wanna make sense of your circumstances, you want to have gospel perspective. Study his word. Know his rules. Run as an athlete following the rules. Verse six, it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Just as the soldiers and the athletes cannot take any shortcuts, the farmer must toil every day. But I think I think this illustration speaks more towards this the normal parishioner who comes to the church. And the reason why I think it speaks more to the normal parishioner who comes to church is because, you know, sometimes we, 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 we give parades 
for soldiers who are returning back home, right? But we, we tell on Veterans Day, we say to vets, thank you for your service. We, we commend them. We recognize them. And we appropriately should. And, and athletes, we, we pack out stadiums all the time. And we cheer when they do phenomenal feats. We, 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 we love to watch them. On a Sunday afternoon in the fall, you can find like 50% of America glued to a TV screen watching their pigskin boys play ball, right? We, we, we cheer them on. But the farmer, the farmer, unlike athletes and the military, it's not glorious or exciting. The farmer is, is never applauded. He doesn't call a, a press conference when he's going to bell his hay, right? The farmer is just like a normal everyday disciple maker. It's not glamorous. It's dirty. It involves sowing and planting and plowing and monitoring. The farming is also like disciple making in that it is endless. When you harvest the grain, it's not over. It's not over. That field still needs work. Like corn, you might harvest it, but you still have to shuck it. Like the farmer who gets to eat the first share of the harvest, the disciple maker gets the blessing of watching people grow into maturity of Christ. The farmer gets to see that person turn their life around. The disciple maker gets to see them turn their life around, gets to see them engage with their husband and wife and become a gospel foundation in their home, loving and shepherding their children, gets to see them become a steward of everything that God has given them, just like a farmer gets to watch his crop grow. And so... Just like the farmer, we, all of us, we're all called to be co-laborers in this process of making disciples. What what, what I want to say to you in this effort, in this movement, is don't grow weary in doing good. Galatians chapter 6 verse 9. Paul writes these words, and let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. I want to tell you, people are messy. They will hurt you. They will say things about you that will make you feel about this big. Even the people who you have invested your life and your time into, they will still hurt you. That's why the proverb says, where there is no oxen, the stable is clean. That means there's no poop in there. And then tell you, if you're looking for a poop-free church, you're not going to find one. If you walk into the doors and you say, oh, this church feels like it doesn't have poop, that's only because we've been shoveling it out of your sight. The truth is, is you're not going to find it. If you want gospel community, you have to understand that suffering is part of gospel community. I don't want to say that. In fact, I hate that I have to say it, but it's the reality is is that as long as we are marred by the curse of sin from our father, Adam, we will continue, continue to stab each other in the back, to cut each other's throat, just as his son did. 
And so Paul is saying to us, to you, to the farmer, keep plowing. He's saying keep plowing, keep pressing forward. Don't grow weary in doing good. Even though that the field looks still barren, even though that the, the seeds haven't sprouted up, or maybe the seeds have came up and now you got weeds along with your seeds. He's saying keep pressing on, keep plowing, keep working the field. Verse seven, think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. What an ominous thing to say. What an ominous thing to say. Hey, you know, listen up, my child. Be strengthened by the grace. Go and, and listen or invest in reliable men that can also continue on to teach others. Be like the soldier. Don't engage in civil pursuits. Um, um, be like the athlete. Don't cut any corners. Be like the farmer. Work every day in the field. Get sweaty. Get dirty. Think over these things. What ominous thing to say, but what's he saying? What's he getting at? He's saying, think on the word, the word of God. The call is clear. If we were to be disciple makers, if we were to be stewards of God's calling, we must be stewards of the word. We must be stewards of the word. We cannot forsake doctrine. We cannot forsake the study of the scriptures. Because they are the very foundation that center us, that keep us on center when the world and the winds come upon us. It is only the word. In closing, Paul completely understood the assignment. That the call of a Christ-centered disciple maker will be filled with suffering and sorrow. Because of Paul's persistent legal troubles, he's now seen as a pariah. He's now alone. But that doesn't thwart Paul's faith or his eagerness to make disciples for Jesus. Why? Why? Because he doesn't see the trees as he's coming down the mountain. All he sees is the path. He doesn't see the trees as he's coming down the mountain. All he sees is the path. If you've been around for the last year, it's no secret to know that I've been on the struggle bus. At times, the wind blows a certain way. And I'm still right there. I felt empty. I felt dry. I faced constant opposition and pressure. And in all of that season, I, I became disheartened. I began to do the very thing that, that I've taught people in discipleship to, 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 to not do. I began to ask, why God? Why me? Why in this? I've been faithful, God. I've been faithful. Why, why am I facing this opposition? I felt like I, I, I couldn't hear the answer. As a man who, who, who I feel like 
I have a really, really, really good discernment. I have a good understanding. I, I, I sense and I feel the Spirit. I feel His prompting and His moving. But in this area, in this time, in this season, in this dryness where my heart was hurting, I felt nothing. Nothing. And I kept going, God, why? Why, why, why? And the reality was the whole time, the whole time, church, the answer was staring me right in the face. It was, it was right there. My situation was no different than all of the people in the scriptures who faced suffering, who faced hardship. And in my, in, in that season, I, I took my eyes, I took my time out of God's word. And I spent more time thinking about my circumstances than coming to the anchor in the ground, his word. I, I took my eyes off of people like Paul who had been deserted. I took my, my eyes off of people like Peter who were persecuted to see that I didn't need to say, why me, God, why me? Because it's a selfish motivation. It is not dying to self to think that way. And, and what I found is that I wasn't alone. I wasn't alone. You know, my, my mind wanted me to think I was alone because it wanted to, it wanted to concentrate on the negative. He wanted to think about that elephant in my mind. It kept going back to the elephant. I can't believe that elephant's there. I can't believe that elephant's there. Stop thinking about that elephant. Rather than focusing on the affirmative that I have a heavenly father who will never leave me, never forsake me. That I have a heavenly father who looks at my proclivities and says you are wonderfully and fearfully made. That I have a heavenly father who can fortify me in the night when I'm crying. And that's the same for you. It's the same for you. I'm no special. In fact, chances are I'm probably worse than you. It's the same for you. You are not alone in this fight. You have an anchor in the storm and that is his word. And if we devour his word, if we devour his word, it gives us perspective. It gives us perspective as we come down the mountain around the trees it gives us perspective in our pain it helps us understand the assignment and so my question for you my my, my bleeding question as i as i look at this this chapter i go do you understand your assignment and and, and I, I will i will tell you this i, I, I surrendered into the ministry at the age of 13 at the age of 13, here very soon I turn 35. I have been in the ministry for over 20 years. I have known my assignment since May of my 13th year on this planet. And there are still times, there are still times that I seemingly forget what God called me to. There are times that I need to get a compass again 
and recenter and refine my true north. So chances are you probably know what God has called you to, but you've been kind of doing this because you haven't been grounded. And that's okay. That's okay. We have a God who is slow to anger. Slow to anger. Slow to chide. And quick to affirm. Quick to love. And so this morning, do you understand the assignment in your suffering? Do you know how to make sense of your suffering? 